In 2005, Robert Simon and Alex Parrish are two gentlemen that purchased a piece of art from an art auction as part of an estate auction held in New Orleans. Now, this painting that was entitled the Salvatore Mundi was really run down and it was it was poorly and partially restored and there were worms eating the word frame that was around it and while the auction price what that went for uh, wasn't disclosed the list price because it was an estate sale for this painting this estimated cost for this painting was around seven hundred and fifty dollars and so they purchased this painting for about seven hundred and fifty dollars and they thought that there was potential to this item because they had been doing research and they, they took it to some experts. They took it to an expert who could restore the p painting to its original context. And what they found, and there's actually some controversy around it, but what they found and believed to be true is that it was a long lost painting of Leonardo da Vinci. And so this painting, it was a painting of Jesus and it was a painting of Jesus. They got it restored. And then just 12 years later, so from 2005 to, to then 2017, on November 15, 2017, this painting, the Salvatore Mundi, was sold at an auction. Can you guess the price? Again, list price was around $750. Sold for $450 million, the largest auctioned item ever. Now that brings up a few thoughts. <laughs> Uh, one, who has $450 million to spend on a painting? I mean, it's about two, 26 inches tall. <laughs> I'd love to hear that budget conversation, right? But then two, how crazy is it that someone would, would pay that much money for this painting? Now, it's incredible that it's a painting of Jesus, potentially by Leonardo da Vinci. $450 million? That's insane. But value is often attached to what someone is willing to pay for it. And so you could say that painting is worth $450 million because somebody paid $450 million for that painting. And so there is innate value, but there's also value in, in the purchase price. And the reason I bring that up is because when we talk about the human soul, that who you are as a person, the question is how valuable is a human life? How valuable is your soul? Well, if you look at the purchase price for that, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down and died, gave his life, and then rose again so that we can experience him and have a relationship with God. And so your soul, your life, is more valuable than a $450 million painting by Leonardo da Vinci because it cost God his own son, that you have eternal value. And that's why I believe that the greatest thing in life is a relationship with Jesus. The greatest thing you could ever have in this life is not something material that you can own. It is not earthly power or popularity, but rather is salvation for your soul. Now, salvation comes through a personal relationship with Jesus. Life, in many ways, is like playing Monopoly in which that when your game is over, when your life is over, all the pieces go back in the box. 
And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do you have a relationship with God? Do you have a place for your soul? That's why this morning's message is entitled, The Greatest Thing in Life, because it's a relationship with the God who created the world and who saves the world. Now, the Bible is all about relationship. In fact, one of the most common theological terms discussed throughout the Bible is this word called covenant. And I want to take a deeper dive into that. And if you're not churchy, I want you to hang with me for a little bit because we're going to give you some practical imagery to hang on to and then also land the plane at the end of why this is so important for you and me today. Because if you can understand the idea of a covenant, then you can understand the value of relationship with Jesus in our lives. Now, a covenant defined is simply put a contract between or agreement between two parties. You could see this in political parties, uh, kings among nations. In Malachi 2.14, it was actually used to describe marriage, that marriage is a serious commitment or contract between two people. Now, in that one, um, it is between two people. It's not two or more parties in that one, okay? Um, but it comes in, and it's a direct relationship with God. Now, the words uh, that describe covenant in the Old Testament, in the original language, in the words of covenant and then words around covenant, actually could be described as to cut meat. Now, sorry, vegans out there, but in this case, the reason they say to cut meat was because when there was a serious contract to be had in the Old Testament, what they would do is that they would actually cut animals in half and that they would, the parties would actually walk between them. And so what they would say is that if I break my portion of this covenant, of this contract, may I be like the animals that we're passing through. That's a lot more intense than a pinky promise, isn't it? And so that's how they would describe. So to have a covenant is to have a relationship or to cut meat in this case. Okay, so it was a very serious thing. Now, there are five regular components or common components to covenants, as we see, or these agreements here. Number one, I already mentioned, is relationships. It is, it a, it is a relational agreement. And so you see that in the marriage covenant, right? You have a bride and a groom. Okay. Secondly, you see promises. We see this in a wedding ceremony as well. Right? You ask a couple questions. Do you promise to live together in holy matrimony? I do. Right? Those are the question part in a wedding ceremony. But along with promises, then third, you have commitments. This would be the vow section of a wedding ceremony. Right? When you make vows to each other, you are making not just promises, but commitments to each other. Fourth component of a covenant is seen as benefits. Or in some cases, they list the curses or consequences that happen if you break the covenant. And then so in a wedding ceremony, right, to a long, happy life together, you're committing to each other. There's a benefit of a long-lasting marriage. But then the last thing you have, uh, last component of a covenant is a sign. There's not always signs and covenants, but typically there is one. And, and in a wedding ceremony or a wedding covenant, that sign is symbolized through a ring. And so it is a picture of the promise, okay? So I want you to think through those things, and when you think covenant, think relationship, or think of a wedding ceremony. It doesn't have to be too churchy. It can just be that God wants a relationship with you. Now, in the Bible, we see covenants throughout. Let me just highlight a couple of them so you can understand the basis of where we're going to land today. First, God made a covenant with Noah. That's found in Genesis chapter 9 that after he spared Noah and his family, so Noah and the ark, that he promised to never flood the earth again. And so that was his promise. That was his commitment. 
the sign of that covenant was the rainbow. Now, it's very interesting that we live in a day where covenants and relationships and signs that were given in Scripture, our culture tries to take and use them for other things. But we have to understand that the original purpose of that was a sign for the Noahic covenant. Another example of a covenant is with Abraham. So God promised Abraham to make him a father of many nations, that he would bless his family, that he'd have lots of kids, who would have kids, who have kids, who would bless the nation of Israel from that, and then it would give them a promised land, and that through the people and through the land, that ultimately he would be a blessing to the world. Now, what's interesting about Abraham's covenant with God is that Abraham actually didn't pass through the animals like I described, but rather a symbol of God, this like smoking pot looking thing. You can check it out there in Genesis. Uh, It's seen in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15. So it talks about the covenant several times, but actually God himself passes through. And so when God makes a covenant and a promise with Abraham, he doesn't just make it with Abraham, but he actually makes it with himself. And so he makes a promise with himself on the behalf of Abraham saying, hey, Abraham, your people are going to mess this up, but I'm going to still be faithful. And so we have this really cool picture that we're actually still a part of today, this expansion of this Abrahamic covenant. Another covenant found in the Old Testament is the covenant with the people of Israel. So that's really given through the person of Moses. So think on the mountain, the Ten Commandments. Now, this one was a promise or commitment among the people and God saying, obey my commands and I will bless you, that if you don't, you're going to experience hardship. And so much of the Old Testament is filled with people battling with their obedience to God. And so when they obey God, they are blessed. When they disobey God, bad stuff happens. Eventually enough bad stuff happens where they repent and come back and God brings somebody to lead them back in. And so there's this continual back and forth. But a majority of it is people disobeying God. And so even when people were faithless, God was faithful. And so you have this promise, this covenant that they just struggle with. And that's going to be really important as we we discuss where we land today, because another word for covenant is testament. So if you think of how your Bible is broken into the Old and New Testament, it's really the Old and New Covenant, or as we talk about relationship, it's the old and new relationship. And so we see this picture here that when God gives a new covenant, a new relationship through Jesus, it changes everything. But one more example before we jump into our discussion today, and that came through David. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives his promise to David that through his lineage will come the savior of the world, the king of kings the good shepherd, that we have this picture that the savior of the world would come through his lineage. And that actually is fulfilled in the story of Christmas, that Bethlehem, the city of David, that was the birthplace there of Jesus, not birth as in his non-existence, but where he leaves heaven and comes down to earth. And so we see that fulfillment. And so the, the Bible in this big big meta-narrative story is broken into a series of relational promises known as covenants. And this all sets up to what we're going to talk about today, which is the new covenant. Now, I know, again, this sounds real like a seminary class or Bible class, but stick with me because it's, it's going to be really practical and helpful if we can understand this. So let's jump into our Bibles here in Hebrews chapter 8. 
So he's writing to an audience that's focused on the Old Testament. And he's writing this and he says, now the point in what we're saying is this. I love that. I love that when the writer directly says, here is the point. He says, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, in previous weeks, we talked about the role of a high priest who really was responsible for restoring the relationship between man and God. And so I invite you to go back and watch some of the earlier uh, messages or listen to the earlier messages in this Hebrews study. Well, in the past, we focused on the priest. Today, I want to focus on the actual physical place and give a little bit of a background to a building or a facility called the tabernacle, because that's what he's referring to in that passage is about this tent. So the tabernacle was set up really to to represent the presence of God. And so there was like a fence, if you will, around the outside. So not everybody's getting in. And then for those that are getting in, there's a place for sacrifices there on the outside. And then you get into the building, which is also a tent, and they're made up of two components. And so there is the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies. Now in the holy place, there's a few interesting things to note. First of all, there are no chairs actually in the holy place of the tabernacle, and that represents the fact that the work of a priest is never done, and that one of their primary roles was to continually clean and cleanse and work within that tabernacle or temple. Also, in that holy place, there was a candlestick, or seen as a menorah, or those seven candles, if you picture that. And so that represents the light of God, which then Jesus comes onto the scene and actually says, I am the light of the world. That's on one side. On the other side is actually what's called the table of presence. And so there are 12 loaves of bread that were placed there to represent what God did to to really sustain the people in the time of wilderness. Now, Jesus comes onto the scene and actually says, I am the bread of life. And so the priests would continually put bread there, and it would last about a week. They'd pull it out, and they would eat that bread. So they kind of had a subsistence there. And so Jesus comes in, and he says, hey, you know the candles that are in the tabernacle? I'm the light of the world. Hey, you know that table with bread? I am the bread of life. Then there is a place for incense and for the aroma of God and sacrifice there. And then within that, there is a curtain that separated from the holy place to a holy of holies. Now, inside of the holy holies, there is a golden altar. There was the Ark of the Covenant. And if you're not like churchy, just think old school Indiana Jones, okay? Getting through that. And like people, I'm not saying that was accurate. I'm just saying that you have a picture of it. So the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God, that in the Old Testament, it was so holy that if you touched it, you would die. And so they would actually carry it with poles. To, and so being put in the temple or in the tabernacle represented the presence of God. Because inside of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a golden urn with manna from when they were in the wilderness. There was Aaron's staff. Aaron was a priest, is a brother of Moses. And then there was the table, um, the tablets there of stone or the table. Um, the, really the tablets of the covenant representing that promise between Moses or the people of Israel and God. Now, along with that, there was this cherubim, this angel-looking figure made of gold over this mercy seat or the bema seat. Now, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and offer a sacrifice or sprinkle blood in there after offering sacrifice for himself to plead for the forgiveness of God on behalf of the people. 
And so there was always something going on at the temple or at the tabernacle. That there's always this pleading, this lighting of candles to make sure it's always lit, things are always going, this bread being made, bread being served, bread being given, incense being lit, sacrifice being given. And so this continued practice over and over and over again because it was never enough. It pointed to something. All right, and so there's a background of that building, and if, if you want to read what we just talked about, that's actually found in Hebrews chapter 9, so the first couple of verses, so I invite you to read that. But we're going to pick things up here in chapter 8, verse 5. It says this, so they, referring to the earthly priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, I love this verse, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. So better ministry, better covenant, better promises. It says, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In other words, if the Old Testament was good enough, why did Jesus come? If the old way of doing things was enough, then why did Jesus himself come down? If there is another way to save the world, why would God give his son? Right? Picture if if the World Health Organization or whatever came and said, hey, that your child's blood is needed. It could save the whole world. So, oh, wow, that's a tough decision. Is it the only way? Well, no, we have like 10 ways. But that would be the most convenient way. So if you could just, you know, sacrifice. Like, no, like, if it's just a way to get to heaven, why would God send his son? But it's not just a way, it's the way. And so the old covenant, the old way, was pointing to what Jesus was going to fulfill. See, in verse 13, it says, And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what was becoming obsolete and is growing old is ready to vanish away. So it's no longer about the old covenant, but about the new. The new is here. Here's another way to think of it in more practical terms. Jesus is greater than the shadows and copies of earthly ministry. He's greater than shadows and in copies. Anyone make shadow puppets with their kids? Just flashlight or nightlight or something in the room. I'll do that with, with kids, and, I, and I'm not very good at it. And I'll be honest, if you're really good at shadow puppets, I question a little bit about what you do with your free time. But that's for another place in time. So I, I, I don't have a lot of options making shadow puppets, right? Like bird, uh, like dog. Okay, um, this is my dog. I know it's pretty good. Um, but at no point does my child ever think that my shadow puppet of a dog is the same thing as our dog, right? Like this is, this is, this is not the real thing, okay? It's not. If you're not a shadow puppet person, one, okay, that's probably good. But two, think of another way to look at it. Anyone ever collect snow globes or ever seen or had a snow globe? Typically, it's of a town or a place or a monument, right? Imagine someone giving you a New York City snow globe with the Statue of Liberty in it. 
oh, it's cute, it's fun, it's a fun way to remember or think about New York City. But if you've got this little snow globe on your desk or on a dresser, at no point in time should you think that that is, in fact, the real Statue of Liberty. It's tiny, it's small, it's something that reminds you or points to the real thing. Right? If you get a little repl- replica of, like, say, you know, the Eiffel Tower, it's like a paperweight on your desk, at no point is that the real thing. That's what the author is saying here. That everything in the tabernacle, everything that was done, those practices, those routines, those rituals were done to point to the coming of Jesus. I fear that many people today struggle with what I would call copier Christianity. To help help illustrate my point, let me just bring something out here. In many ways, a copier is very useful. In other ways, if you are a teacher or you work in an office where you have to use a copier, they can and often are the bane of your existence. Because <laughs> they always break right when you need them to. Right? Nothing is as frustrating as you have a deadline, you're working on something, and then you get that dreaded sign of paper jam. And then you're trying to open all the things and you're like here and you just don't know how to get anything. You're like, why won't you work? And so you just kick it. Not really. That You would never do anything like that. I would never do anything like that. Okay, maybe I have. Um, we get frustrated with this thing when it doesn't work. But at its best... It makes copies of something that already exists, right? When I say copier Christianity, I think people are trying to base their religion off of something else. Well, it's my parents' faith. It's my friend's faith. It's my spouse's faith. You know, I've gone to church. I've, I've done the things. I've said these things. But you don't get saved off the copy. And if something is copied after a copy after a copy, it starts to get pixelated. And sometimes you have not even a full color copy, you just have a black and white copy. And it doesn't substitute for the real thing. What the writer in Hebrews is saying is that those priests served a copy of the heavenly. That we don't have copy or Christianity, that we have a calling in Christianity, that you are called to be a son and a daughter, that it's not a list of to-dos, but rather a relationship with the God who made you and saves you. You see, religion is a shadow. Relationship is a substance. Too many people are walking around going, hey, I'm a Christian. Because it looks like something. You're pretending to look like something, but there's no substance there. You don't want 
a shadow puppet Christianity. You don't want a snow globe Christianity. You don't want a copier Christianity. You want the authentic, real thing. And that is what God, through Jesus, offers. We continue reading in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. It says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death was, has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into, the, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See, that tabernacle, that tent, the holy place with all the symbols, the holy of holies, all those things were meant to resemble heaven, to point people to heaven. But we don't need a tabernacle or a temple or an ark of the covenant today because Jesus Christ himself is not in a tent, but in heaven through the very presence of God himself face to face. It was a symbol. It was a shadow. It was a copy of things to come. Now Jesus is there interceding on your behalf and on mine. And so now he is saying there is a new relationship, there is a new promise, there is a new covenant that is not based on what you can do for me, but based on what I did for you. And so when you receive this new covenant, this new relationship, this new promise, God says, you don't have to go into a temple, says my Holy Spirit is coming into you, that you are the temple that you are the building. And so now we gather, we have rituals, we have disciplines and practices, but it's so that we develop the relationship. When someone is overseas, you always see that in the movies, right? They always have that picture of that loved one, right? To inspire them, which, by the way, foreshadow in every single movie, if a person on the battlefield looks at a photo of a loved one, they're probably going to die in the next scene. <laughs> it just happens. It just does, does, does. It's like, I'm coming home to you, baby. Oh, they're not going to make it. Okay. That picture is not a substitute for the presence of the person. You look at the picture longing for the presence. Does that make sense? In Christianity, we have practices. We gather as a church, right? But we gather as the body, as a family, to have community and connection and fellowship, to worship, to sit together under the word of God. Why? To experience the presence of God. But church is not simply a building to come to, but a family to belong to, that now you have direct access to God through Jesus. He's saying, you can come to me, not once a year on the Day of Atonement through a great high priest, but you can come to me to the throne of grace with confidence because I want direct relationship with you. That the new is so much better. That your value 
is so high. It's so much greater than a $450 million painting because it costs Jesus his life. And because he gave up everything, he wants to give you everything. And it's a relationship with him. But don't just take my word for it. Jesus himself says these things here in Luke 22, verse 20. And likewise, the cup, as they're passing, taking communion, which we're going to do here in a little bit. So likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying that this cup that is being poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In Hebrews chapter 8, the author quotes Jeremiah 31. And so I want to go directly to that passage. And here's what that passage reads. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant in the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made in the, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For my covenant they broke, and though I was their husband, and though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He's saying, what I'm about to give you is better. You don't just have a photo of what's to come. You have a relationship in the presence of God available to you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves. He says, look, you didn't do anything. <laughs> you didn't bring anything to the party, okay? He says, the claim for anything comes from us, but that our sufficiency is from God that who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. One last passage here. Second Peter chapter two, verses four and five, that as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Why can we say that the new covenant is better, that the new promise, the new relationship is better? Well, a few things here. Number one, Jesus is greater than the tabernacle. He is the presence of God. And he's standing before the presence of God in heaven right now. And then he's offered to those who trust him as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit, the presence of the living God dwelling inside of you. That's why he can say that God is for you. God is with you. God is in you. He is greater than the tabernacle because now it says your body is the living temple of God. That where you go, the temple of God goes. That's why what you do and what you say matter. Because you are the living temple. You are the house of God. You are the body. That it matters what we do because the presence of God is living inside. So Jesus is greater than the tabernacle. Number two, Jesus is greater than the priesthood. My job as a pastor is to shepherd, to encourage, to serve, to equip people for 
ministry. My job as a pastor is to serve and to bless and to help you find calling and ministry and purpose in him. That you don't have to go through me to get to God, but you get direct access to him. That collectively we are called the priesthood of believers. This is incredibly powerful when you understand that you don't have to go through one person on one day of the year with the hopes that maybe you're good enough, but rather recognize that he is enough and that he is good and that he gives you direct access today. And the reason for that is because, number three, that Jesus is greater than any sacrifice. The entire Old Testament can be summarized in man's failed attempt to be good enough for God. It doesn't mean the Old Testament is obsolete. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament is bad. What it means is that the Old Testament shows us that we needed a savior, right? You don't simply go to the doctor to get better. You go to the doctor first to find out what you have. The Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, tell us what we have. We have a sin problem. And no matter how good you think you are, you will not make it to heaven on your own. Andrew, our worship pastor, his wife Morgan, and, and, and Jared, one of our elders, they, they just nonchalantly hiked the Grand Canyon on Friday. I think I woke up that same morning and my back hurt, so just getting out of bed. So that felt good. And then he's just up here playing today like nothing ever happened. You just hiked the Grand Canyon. It's like, oh, let's sing Blessed Assurance. Like, I would be like, Blessed Assurance. <laughs> like, like, someone else is singing today. <laughs> Look, as big as the Grand Canyon is, the Grand Canyon between you and God stretches for all eternity. And you will not cross it no matter how hard you try. And most world religion is man's attempt to get to God. And I'm telling you, you will not get there and you will be exhausted trying. But you don't have to because Jesus himself was a sacrifice. And then the last thing here is that Jesus then is greater than all feasts and religious customs. Look, we gather as a church regularly, as a family. There are spiritual disciplines and things that you can do to work on relationship, right? But you don't do those things to be loved by God. You do those things because you are loved by God. Because when someone shows unconditional, incredible love, the natural response to that is to be moved and then to move back and say, wow. It's not, cool, thank you, I'm going to do whatever I want now. People will say, well, John, does that mean the grace of God means I can do whatever I want? Like, if you ask that question, I will come back and say, I don't know if you really understand the grace of God then. Because <laughs> if you understand that grace and you've received that and you've been forgiven, man, it makes you want to go forgive, bless, serve, and love others the way that God has loved you. So there's two signs of this new covenant. And we're going to practice these today and next week. The first sign of the new covenant, this new relationship, this new commitment, is baptism. 
is a picture of what Jesus did on the cross. And Jesus himself was baptized to give us that picture. And then when he's telling his disciples what to do before he leaves, he says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them all to, to obey all that I've commanded you. And so it is a picture, an expression, a symbol, just like a wedding ring is a symbol of a, a relationship. It is a symbol of your relationship with God. Next Sunday, we're going to celebrate baptisms in our services. And I want to challenge you to get baptized if you've not previously. Now, I'm respectful of other practices when parents have maybe baptized infants or things of that nature. Like, they do that. Why? Because they love. They love their kiddos. They want their kiddos to be with God. But here's the thing. If you were baptized as an infant, you did not make that choice. You do not make that choice. What I want to do is give you that choice to say, you know what? I believe. I have a relationship with God. I have a relationship with Jesus, and I want to tell people about it. So I invite you to take that step to get baptized. And then the second thing that we have here is the Lord's Supper. That in the upper room, when they pass the bread, when they pass the cup, that represented what Jesus did. It was an extension of Passover, not just an extension, but a fulfillment of it. A practice for years and years and years wasn't just salvation back in Egypt, but really pointed to the salvation that would come through Jesus. And so we're going to take that together in just a moment. And I want to ask you two questions here. Number one is just, do you have a relationship with God? Do you have a relationship? And then two, if you have a relationship, are you settling for shadows or choosing substance? I wonder how many people are living in a copy of Christianity, just phoning it in, going through the motions, making shadow puppets. (laughs) They got their little Jesus snow globe somewhere when you've been called to so much more. And so we're going to take these elements. Uh, I invite you to open them, hang on to them, and we're going to take them together. And if you're not a Christian, I invite you to just receive Christ today. (laughs) You can do that today. I invite you to receive this, to remember it, to have a relationship with God. Will you pray with me? Dear Jesus, we come before you. We know that we can't make it to heaven on our own. But God, you came down. You died on a cross for my sins. And you rose again. God, I believe in you as Lord. I I trust you as Savior. I commit my life to you. I don't want to just have a religion of to-dos and efforts of my own that will fall short. But God, I want to have a relationship with you where I can have forgiveness and love and joy and peace and eternity. God, I receive you into my life. 
believe in you today. And I commit my life to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.